had to get those last claps in right over there. I'm one of those people that likes to be the last person to clap sometimes too. I'd love to look with you this morning at the Gospel of John, chapters 3 and 4. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. Um, you might notice in the bulletin that we're going to be reading from different verses from those chapters, even some in chapter 2. So this week we're going to try to put these chapters together. So you might remember two weeks ago we looked at John chapter 3. Last week we looked at John chapter 4, and we were exploring together how Jesus approaches good people and people that are broken. And I want to combine those two this week to take an even deeper look at how Jesus engages us, how he really engages our lives and who we are. So I want to read from John chapter 2, because you might remember um, those last couple verses of John chapter 2 kind of set the interpretive lens in which we understand the chapters that are after chapter 2. Uh, and then I want to read a section from chapter 3 that summarizes what we looked at with Nicodemus, and then a section from chapter 4 that summarizes what we looked at with the woman at the well. And then I want to make all of that punchy by one verse in John chapter 3 about Jesus coming into the world, not to condemn, but to save. So hopefully we'll look at that together today. So let's follow along, if you would, as I read God's Word. Remember, you can bank your entire life on what I'm about to read. This is true. John chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, of course, referring to Jesus, what Jesus was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's look together at chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Jesus said to the woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then finally, from John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray together. O Lord in heaven, we ask that as we sit under your word again, as we even hear things that we've been thinking about again, that you would refresh our souls, 
that you would go even deeper into our lives this week, that you would convince us in brand new ways that solid joys, that lasting treasure are only found in Jesus, that only your children, your sons and daughters know those solid joys and lasting treasures. Holy Spirit, convince us not only of that, but also convince us that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are our unending need. So whatever you have to do to decrease our confidence in ourselves, do it. Give us greater confidence in what you are and who you are and what you have done. Convince us of good news. We pray this for your glory, for our good. Amen. I don't know about you, but I have come across very few people who have actually flat out said, I hate Jesus. I've come across very few people in my life that would just flat out say those words, I hate Jesus. To nuance that even a little bit more, I have met many, many people who dislike Christianity. They, like, they may dislike Christianity because of these reasons. Uh, they perceive that we as followers of Christ have a holier-than-thou attitude in the way that we carry ourselves, in the way that we live our lives, in the way that we think, in the way we express what we think. I've met those who have not only dislike Christianity because of the the attitude that we often have, but also because they've been really hurt by the church and burnt by the church, meaning that they have grown up and realized that the message they heard of Christianity was actually a truncated gospel, or um, it was extremely shallow, and they didn't really engage with the deeper things of their lives, like suffering and hardship, things that they couldn't have anticipated. Other ways that I have heard people talk to me anyway about being burnt by the church is also that people feel as though that they have been manipulated through things that have happened in the church. There are all kinds of ways that that manipulation can work itself out. But for the most part, most people that I talk with actually think Jesus is pretty amazing. For for whatever issues they may have with Christianity and the church, They actually think that Jesus is a pretty amazing person. Yes, they may have lots of questions about Jesus' teaching or can we really trust the Bible and those kinds of questions, but in the main, they actually think Jesus is kind of amazing. I've only had just a couple people who really doubted whether or not Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. That's been my experience. I don't know yours, but that's been mine. At the end of the day, ultimately, ultimately, Every one of us, all of us, if we're going to engage with Christianity, if we are going to engage with Jesus, we all have to come to grips with this fact, that there are things about ourselves that we don't like, and there are things about our lives that aren't good. And if we're actually going to be engaged in thinking about Jesus, we have to come to grips with that truth, that there's lots of stuff about ourselves that we really don't want to see, we don't want to think about, we don't want to deal with. Well, it's into that 
that God gives us John 3 and 4. John, God gives us these chapters, John 3 and 4, I think, to give us a window into the life of faith. When we read these chapters, we get a window into the life of faith and the new possibilities that Jesus brings into our lives. The new possibilities that Jesus brings into sinners' lives, people like you and me. The new things that Jesus makes possible because of what he has done. So this morning as we look at chapters 3 and 4 again and dive perhaps a little bit deeper into it, instead of from the outset thinking, well, what is this at the end going to tell me to do? Instead of thinking, what am I going to do at the end of this message, let me show you what the message is actually doing to us. Does that make sense? So we're going to try to get a window into the life of faith and then think about these new possibilities together that Jesus brings into sinners' lives, people like you and me. So let's go back to the story of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let's think about that encounter that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus was male. Nicodemus was rich. Nicodemus was old. Nicodemus was educated. As verse 10 tells us in chapter 3, he was the teacher in Israel. He wasn't just one of the teachers. He was one of the most prominent teachers in Israel. He was, because of him being part of the Sanhedrin, which we find in John chapter 3, he was actually part of the cultural elite. He had more cultural influence than almost anyone else because he belonged to the Sanhedrin. And he comes to Jesus at night. And remember, he comes to Jesus at night not because he was looking for spiritual advice. Remember, he doesn't ask Jesus anything. What does someone who has incredible intelligence, money, experience, and part of the cultural elite need? Basically nothing. They don't feel like they need anything. So he comes to Jesus at night not because he's embarrassed that who might find out. He comes to Jesus at night because he wants to work an angle. That's why he comes to Jesus with this very generous spirit. Jesus, as we read in the first eight verses of chapter three, we know that you are sent from God because nobody could do these things unless God was with him. Nicodemus comes to Jesus with this generous spirit. He's trying to work an angle. He's thinking, you know, Jesus, maybe we can take your influence and combine it with ours and we can really have something here. That's why I think Jesus doesn't begin to do anything with Nicodemus other than go back to the beginning, to the very foundation of what it means to have a relationship with God, a living relationship with God. Jesus, if those of you, if you're here this morning and you love theology, oh, Jesus is all about some theology here. And if you'd rather not think deeply about theology, Jesus is after Nicodemus' heart. He goes right after the heart. And I hope that you remember me saying that if you really like theology, the whole purpose of theology is to get to your heart. And if you want God to get at your heart, then what you really need is truth. Because truth is what will change your heart and my heart. So Jesus says these words to Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born from above. And it's so powerful that he says to Nicodemus, you can't even see the kingdom or enter the kingdom unless you are born again. 
unless you are born from above. And this is the essence of what Jesus is talking about. Birth happens to you. Birth happens to you. A baby doesn't choose to be born. A baby does nothing. The mother does it all. The mother is the one who labors. The mother is the one that through pain pushes out this baby. The mother is the one that suffers for her baby. She puts her life on the line so that this baby might come into the world. The baby does nothing. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you are brought into the spiritual world. Your relationship with God parallels the physical world in being born. You are brought into life with God through the labor of another. You are brought into relationship with God through the pain and suffering of someone else. He is preaching to Nicodemus the gospel. He is saying, Nicodemus, the reason why you would be born, the reason why you would be alive for the first time with God is because I am going to die to bring you into life. I, through my labor, Jesus is saying, my work, I am the one that causes you to be born. This is why John says in chapter one, if you are born of God, it is not that you were born because of your decision, it's not because of your family, and it's not because of your morality. If anyone is born, if anyone is in a, begin, in a relationship with God, it is because God brought them, brought you, brought me to life. Someone else had to work in order for me to be born, same way that my mom had to work in order for me to come into this world, and I was a big baby, and there was an awful lot of pain and hardship she went through. She reminds me of that every now and then, mainly when I was younger. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, same thing he's telling us. I will do it all. God does it all. You see, life with God is not the way that Nicodemus was thinking about it. Life with God is not a spiritual merger and acquisition. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our morality. We, are not, we do not begin life with God because of that, the fact that we are religious. Our relationship with God does not begin with the fact that we are churchy people. Jesus is saying you can't make yourself a Christian. New life beginning with God is 100% because of someone else. Faith. Believing in Jesus, entrusting yourself to Jesus is the evidence of the new birth. It is not the cause. You see, Jesus, excuse me, Nicodemus was a religious person. Nicodemus was churchy. If anybody was churchy, it was Nicodemus. Jesus, Nicodemus, why do I keep saying that? Nicodemus was moral. He had all kinds of rigid, more, rigid moral way of looking at life. And Jesus took him back to the beginning and said, no, Nicodemus, those things don't get you in. That's not how your life with God starts. It doesn't get you in the door because of those things. You see, the end of the day, 
Nicodemus had everything. He had a sense of right and wrong. He had discipline. He had a strong work ethic. He was responsible. He did the right activities in his life. And he had everything. But he didn't have Jesus. And sometimes, as you see it in your bulletin, sometimes you have to hear how you are saved before you are saved. Sometimes you have to hear how that happens before you are actually saved. You see, good people, religious people, moralistic people, people like us, people that are churchy, we are always in need of grace. We are in need of grace from the deepest feeling that we have to our best behavior. Grace has to touch everything. Grace has to redeem everything. There's not an eyelash on my body that doesn't need the grace of God. There's nothing in my life, my being, my existence that doesn't need God to touch my life. I need God's grace everywhere and in everything about me. That's what Jesus has to say to Nicodemus. That's what he has to say to us. You need grace everywhere all the time. Now let's move on and think about the woman at the well. Remember, this is a quite amazing story of how radical Jesus is. Here he was, a Jewish man talking to a woman. And not only that, she was a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. They didn't get along. There was all kinds of racial tension and, and bias. And here is Jesus talking to her. And the text even says in chapter 4 that it was at noon, which is not the time that anybody is out getting H2O. People go in the morning or they go at night. They don't go in the middle of the day. She was avoiding people. She was trying to avoid everyone and everything. And it's there that she meets Jesus. And what Jesus says to her is, hey, can you give me some water? And they meander around that a little bit. She's trying to figure out what he's saying. And then she ultimately doesn't understand what, she's, what Jesus is saying. And she kind of tries to redirect his words to her. But he stays firm. And he says to her, no, how about this? How about we get at things this way? Go get your husband. Now, Jesus is going right after her life, everything. She says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five, and the person you're living with is not your husband. You see, she was an outcast. She was on the fringe. She knew that her life was broken. She didn't understand Jesus completely, but knew that, hmm, thirst I, every time I drink, I always need more. But he is offering something that if I take, I will never thirst again. You see, Jesus knows that there are layers to our lives. He knows that there's a thirst underneath our thirst. He knows that there's stuff underneath our stuff. He knows that there is sin underneath our sin. That's why he's getting her to think about thirsting. Because he wants her to think about her life. Because he wants to think about how she has been putting ultimate meaning and significance in her relationships. In having sex with other people. And we might add to this. 
But oftentimes we try to satisfy the deepest thirst in our lives, meaning purpose and hope and knowing whether or not we are loved. We don't just do it with relationships and we don't just try to do it with sex. It also goes to other things, doesn't it? We try to find ultimate meaning through our career. We try to find ultimate hope through the monies that we acquire and the resources we have or our reputation is actually what we think will bring us approval. You see, Jesus is getting at, well, what's underneath why you're doing what you're doing in your life? He's wanting us to think about how we are living and where we are placing ultimate value in the things that are on our calendars every day. He's saying, think about what you do. And if you will, think about why you're doing it. Because that matters. Because all of us are thirsting for ultimate meaning and hope and satisfaction. And just like the woman, we try to find it in all these other ways. And Jesus offers her something that's living water that will satisfy her thirst forever, meaning it satisfies the deepest things about her, and she knew it. That's why she went back to town to tell people. That's why she said, let me tell you about a man who's told me everything that I have ever done. Isn't it amazing to meditate and think about that phrase? This was her testimony. Let me tell you about a man who told me everything that I have ever done. Well, I can't imagine that her encounter with Jesus lasted years where Jesus just sat there and started listening. Okay, well, when you were one day old, this is what you did. And on the second day of your life, you did this. He didn't do that. That's not what she was getting at. He was, she wasn't saying, you know, Jesus actually lists everything I've ever done. No, she's saying he uncovered why I'm doing everything in my life. He got to the core of my being. He knows everything about me. He knows everything I've ever done. And what that means is this. It means sometimes, oftentimes, broken people, people that are addicts, people that are outcasts and feel as though that they're on the social fringe of everything, they need to hear that they can be saved. They need to hear that message over and over. They need to hear the message that you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're trying to put ultimate significance and meaning and purpose and hope. You are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Now, does all that sound familiar, things we've talked about the last couple of weeks? I hope it does if you've been here. But I want us to also think about how Jesus brings new opportunities into sinners' lives, people like you and me, thinking about these two things together. Jesus brings new opportunities in our lives. Don't think that he doesn't. Every day he gives us new opportunities. Here's a way, here's something that Jesus does through these two stories. He gives us a new opportunity, a new opportunity to look at ourselves to look at ourselves in different ways. You know, you read these stories and you realize, oh, life with Jesus, it's not shallow. It's not shallow interaction at all. When Jesus deals with Nicodemus with good people or he deals with people that are broken and know that they are broken, it's not shallow at all. It's deep interaction. He makes us think all the time about 
is grace really offensive to me? Do I really need God's grace? Do I really want God's grace? Or am I good just going on like I am? Now I'll take a little bit of grace to add to my good things. But do I really need God's grace at the deepest level of my life? Because Jesus is after our hearts all the time, and it's not shallow. So that means as we live our lives this week, we shouldn't think that our lives with God are going to be really shallow. We just get some little phrase to live by. No, through everything that we're dealing with in our lives, God is uncovering and rediscovering who we are. He's helping us understand who we are through whatever challenge, through whatever joy, through whatever high, through whatever low. God is after the deep things in our lives. And the new opportunity that we have is to recognize afresh that our life with God is not shallow. Here's something else. As you think about these chapters and think about these stories, are you more like Nicodemus? Are you more like the woman at the well? When you think about your own life, is grace really offensive? If you're really moral and really religious and really churchy, if you can remember the day in which you gave your life to the Lord Jesus, does it offend you when Jesus says, well, that faith that you made, that profession you made, was the evidence of the prior work that he did? Does it offend you that your faith didn't merit anything before God? That your goodness, your churchiness, your morality doesn't earn anything with God? Is it offensive that Jesus had to do everything for you and for me? That the only way that my life with God would begin, the only way that I would be born with God, is by Jesus laboring and bringing me to life. Because for those of us that are religious and moral, grace is offensive. And God is going to teach us our whole lives about how difficult it is to admit his power and his grace and how his grace changes everything about me. Or do you find yourself more like the woman where you know deep down you're really broken where you know that there are things that you want to hide because you don't want others to find out. Jesus comes to her and reinterprets her entire life. She was fully known by Jesus and fully loved by Jesus. And we know that because her reputation wasn't ultimate to her anymore. The thing that she was trying to hide, you know, like, well, I'm not married. I haven't been with five men, and the one I'm living with now, she didn't want to divulge that. Now we find her going into town, in the community where they would know about her life, and we find her saying, let me tell you about a guy that knows everything I've ever done. Her reputation was not most important to her anymore. And that means if we are more like the woman at the well, oftentimes we will find ourselves living our lives, filling our calendar, making decisions based upon, I gotta manage what people know about me. I gotta make sure they don't find out things about me. 
You see, the gospel is not our reputation in maintaining it, managing it, promoting it. The gospel is Jesus. And Jesus frees us to be who we are, fully known and fully accepted by him, forgiven, righteous because of what he has done. Every day, Jesus gives us new opportunities. We know that through the way we look at ourselves and the way we can think about our lives and reflect on how we are actually living and what's driving what we're doing. Whether new opportunities in the way you relate to others. See, if we'll, if we'll sit and think about how we are more like Nicodemus or more like the woman at the well, you might find yourself, in, like I do, both. There's much of me that's like Nicodemus and there's some of me that's like the woman at the well. Well, I want to live by my reputation too and managing that. But if we will do that, if we will reflect on our own lives and let the gospel come in those areas where we typically don't want, it can change the way that we relate to others. When you think about these two chapters and think about these two stories, and you think about how Jesus relates to the good people and how Jesus relates to people that are broken, it reminds us in a very profound way, Jesus doesn't have a canned approach to reaching people. He doesn't have a canned approach. He comes to people as they are. And that means for us in our lives, as we talk to people, be thinking about this idea of how Jesus came to Nicodemus and be thinking about the idea of John chapter four and how Jesus came to the woman. Because as you encounter people and you get the opportunity to share your faith, you might realize that you, because you know how much there's still a lot of Nicodemus within you, you might realize how powerful the message is of grace that you need to talk to someone else about too. Does that make sense? And you might realize that when you're talking with someone who is horribly broken, really broken, and they know it, that it's probably not the best thing to like start throwing Bible verses at them. But remind them that they are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Because when you approach people, you have to get to know them, and you have to hear them, and you have to listen to their story, and you have to figure out, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus and Jesus did with the woman, he knew exactly what we needed. He knew exactly what they needed. And that's what he will do through us as we reach others as we can put into practice how he continues to reach us. Make sense? So he'll give us new opportunities in how we relate to others. And here's the last one. We will have new opportunities every day to think about change, not only in ourselves, but also how people change. Think about chapter four. What we learned, one thing we learned in chapter four that we hadn't talked about yet is this idea of process. You know how change happens in your life and in my life? The same way it happened with the woman at the well. It was a process. Same thing that happened with Nicodemus. It was a process. If you go back and read chapter four, what you will find is that this woman identifies Jesus, first of all, as a Jew. If you look in verse nine. And then she kind of perceives that he is a prophet in verse 19. And then she recognizes that he is the Messiah, verse 24. And then she recognizes that he is the Savior, verse 42. In our lives, change happens 
through a process. There are things that we are always learning about ourselves, about others, about the world, about Jesus, about his word. It's a process. Don't get caught up in trying to get immediate results. It takes time. It takes us time to process our own lives and to reinterpret things through what God says, things that perhaps we'd never thought about before. And change happens in our lives and in others. A new opportunity here is also just thinking about this whole idea of affirmation. You know how important affirmation is in our lives? It's so significant. It's so significant. Just think about comparing affirmations for a moment. You know, when people compliment you, when people say things about you, when they affirm you in your life, just think about the affirmations that you may get at work. You know, my guess is a lot of you perhaps have yearly reviews. And people tell you things that you've done really, really well. And they tell you areas in which you need to work on. My guess is you get affirmations at home. My guess is at times there's tension in your relationships because you don't quite get the affirmation that you're looking for. Whether it's from your spouse or whether it's from your children or whether it's from your parents or whether it's from your friends. There may be some of you here this morning that are waiting on affirmation. You may be here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I just wish that my boss really affirmed that I did something right somewhere, you know? You may be waiting on that affirmation at home from your spouse or your friend or your family or your parents. I don't know. But when you read these two stories, especially the woman at the well, we shouldn't, we can't help but be amazed at the affirmation that Jesus gives this woman that he knew everything that she ever did, and he didn't run. He wasn't saying that she did things right in her life, but he wasn't going anywhere. He was there as her savior who loved her. There is no greater affirmation than we can have than God's affirmation. So if you're waiting for an affirmation from work, you might get it, you might not. I hope you will. You may not get the affirmation from your spouse that you were looking for, for. But what the gospel brings to us is God's affirmation. When we repent and believe and find our life in Jesus, God gives us the most significant and important affirmation that we can ever hear, that we are forgiven, that we are loved, and that we belong in his family. Every week when we leave, Every week, God is pronouncing his blessing on his children. That means this week, if you don't get the affirmation that you would like to get at work, or you don't get it at home, whatever you're doing this week, you have God's affirmation that his smile is upon you. You have the affirmation that he is going to be gracious to you. You have the hope that his presence will be with you and that one day he will make everything right. Now that is affirmation that is greater than every other affirmation that we could ever hope to get. And it's only found, that affirmation is only found in Jesus. And do you know what happens when you get affirmations? 
If you can think back in your life about getting affirmations, whether it's at work, at home, or whatever it is, my hunch is it goes something like this. You get the affirmation you're looking for or not expecting, and it comes and it hits you, you smile. In some ways, you're relieved. In some ways, you're thankful that somebody notices something about you. When you are affirmed in many ways about things that are going on in your life, my guess is that you not only smile, you get generous. And you start being thankful for what's going on in your life and what's going on around you and what God is doing in you and through you. You might even get excited. Do you remember the affirmation you got from work and you came home and said, I got a raise? The affirmation that was there led to you rejoicing and being thankful and being excited. It might even have spilled over to other people to where you wanted to be kind to others. You see, this is the shape of the gospel in our lives. We give our lives to Christ. We understand the grace of God. We receive his blessing over and over, and it overflows from us to others. In other words, maybe we can think about it this way. What happens when grace sinks down into your bones? What happens when the grace of God begins to get deep into you? What happens when God's forgiveness sinks way down into your life? What happens when the love of God begins to get into your bones? You become a gracious person. You become someone who wants to forgive. We become a people who want to love in the way that we have been loved by God. We become a community of grace. When grace gets into us, we become gracious people that are repentant, that receive God's forgiveness, that receive his blessing and give it away. We become a people that are confident, not in ourselves, not in our reputation, but confident in God and what he says about us individually and collectively. It means that we don't relate to people with rules and unrealistic expectations that we're unwilling to admit. It means that we relate to people in grace. And in mercy. Jesus didn't come to condemn, but to save. How is he saving you? What is he doing in your life? Think about it. Talk to someone. Talk to someone about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these stories and how they tell us of how you engage people, Jesus. Whether we are moralistic and churchy that need to be reminded that your grace is far greater than our goodness and that our goodness means nothing before you, that your grace is what begins and maintains and ends our relationship with you. Or whether we feel that we are deeply broken and feel as though we have to live our lives managing what people find out or know. You fully know and fully love. Remind us again and again that you are using us in this world to spread your glory. 
remind us that our lives are being shaped after the pattern of your life. Remind us that you are still saving us and making us into what we should be. For your glory and by grace, amen.